Hey, Aaron. Hey, Casey. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Good. Thanks. I'm really excited to be here. We're back for episode three. Yes. And episode three is epic. It is called the Battles of Saratoga, and it looks at the two major battles that took place in Saratoga during 1777, very early on in the American Revolution. Nice. I mean, it's pretty It's pretty amazing when you think about it, how uh, this huge event in American history happened right here in the capital region. Yeah. I, really, when you think about how much of a turning point the Battle of Saratoga was in the overall revolution and what it meant for the Continental Army to win those battles and to obtain the backing of the French, of course, that meant that we could go on and win the revolution. So to think that so much of that started right here is pretty phenomenal. And also during the research, we learned a lot about some of the local people who really played a part in that, including Abraham Tenbrook and Philip Schuyler and people in their circle who were really affected by it, but also really affected the outcome. Sure, yeah. Um, I'm ready to hear their stories. How about you? All right, let's do it. All right. Okay. And go! Tales of Old Albany. Series 1, The Schuylers and the Tenbrooks. Episode 3, The Battles of Saratoga. Welcome to the third episode of Tales of Old Albany. Last time, we explored the lifelong friendship of Philip Schuyler and Abraham Tenbrook. This time, we're taking a closer look at the Battles of Saratoga. We'll explore their importance, Albany's involvement, and hear from combatants on both the American and British sides like Philip Schuyler, Abraham Tenbrook, Horatio Gates, Benedict Arnold, John Burgoyne, Baroness von Rietzel, and Simon Fraser. What happened at the Battles of Saratoga would decide if the American cause would live to see another day. If the Battles of Saratoga were won by the British, they could easily advance to Albany and take the city. If Albany was lost, New York as a whole would be controlled by the British, cutting off the northern colonies from the southern colonies and effectively ending the war with a British victory. The importance of what happened on those battlefields was not lost on any of the men involved. But as you'll see, that didn't stop them from getting embroiled in petty arguments within their own forces. Join us as we dive into the drama that was the Battles of Saratoga on this episode of Tales of Old Albany. In the summer of 1777, the Northern Army, then commanded by Major General Philip Schuyler, had an incredibly important task. Stop British General John Burgoyne and his forces from advancing down the Hudson River toward Albany. The first chance to stop Burgoyne was at Fort Ticonderoga, which is about 100 miles north of Albany. It did not go well. Good morning, sir. How may I? I have an urgent message for General Schuyler. I will deliver it to him at once, sir. Please come inside and rest for a moment while I awaken him. Much obliged. 
Sir, I am sorry to wake you, but an express rider has just arrived with an urgent message. Give it here. Oh, dear Lord. Philip, what is it? Sinclair has retreated. Fort Ticonderoga has fallen to the British. I must depart to Fort Edward at once. Prince, light the candles in my study. I need to inform General Washington. Right away, sir. Let me help you dress and pack, my dear. Oh, Kitty. Burgoyne is advancing toward Saratoga, toward Albany. If General Howe is advancing up the Hudson to meet him, our entire cause could be lost right here in our own city. That will not happen, my love. Not with you in charge. Now, let us prepare you for the journey. Skyler left for Fort Edward at 8 that morning after the express messenger's delivery about three hours earlier. By the following day, he was at Fort Edward, where Brigadier General Abraham Tenbrook joined him on July 18th with the Albany Militia, which was 1,600 men strong. We're here to aid however we can, Philip. You and your men are a sight for sore eyes, Abraham. Meanwhile, Burgoyne's forces were making their way down from Fort Ticonderoga to Albany. Schuyler was forced to retreat over the coming days. His corps were weakened by militiamen leaving to tend to their crops, desertions, illness, lack of provisions, and a major loss of faith in his abilities after the loss of Ticonderoga. Many, especially the New England troops serving under him, thought him a traitor for the loss. Yet Schuyler continued to do everything he could to slow Burgoyne's advance. <sighs> Damned rebels cutting down so many trees. As if these torrential rains were not problem enough for our men. The swamps and streams constantly overflow and ruin the roads, make the bridges impassable. He's even burned crops. He's prepared for us. Yet thus far, we are the victors, and in the King's name, I pray we retain that status. Meanwhile, the people of Saratoga fled from the path of the advancing British army. Among them were John and Lydia Nielsen, whose quaint farmhouse sat in the middle of the countryside, behind what would eventually become American lines during the Second Battle of Saratoga. My dear Lydia, you must leave our farmhouse for your parents' residence in the town of Stillwater at once. I've packed most of our belongings in the cart. But are you not coming with me, John? I'm joining the militia. I must defend our home. Oh, John, please do everything to preserve yourself. Our house would be nothing without you living in it alongside me. I shall, my love. Catherine Schuyler ventured north twice in July to gather belongings from the home she and Philip had in Saratoga. The house was a business estate. Schuyler had multiple mills, most dedicated to timber and flax. But it was also a cozy summer retreat. Now it sat directly in Burgoyne's path. Already at the Schuyler's Saratoga home was Schuyler's aide, Richard Varick. Mrs. Schuyler, what, what a pleasant surprise to see you and your infant Cornelia here. Good evening, Colonel Varick. I've come with the wagon to gather as many valuables as possible. Please, let me assist you in that, Mrs. Schuyler. That is unnecessary, Colonel, though I do thank you. I have Jenny here with me to help and to tend to Cornelia. I do beg you to add a line to your next letter to my husband for me, as I do not have time to write him myself. I will be writing him momentarily. What is your message? Please inform him little Cornelia is with me, and the older children are well at Albany. And do beg him not to expose himself unnecessarily in battle. 
I have also brought fresh linens and provisions to be sent to him. The message and goods will be delivered, madam. While Schuyler did all he could to impede Burgoyne's journey toward Saratoga, and various citizens fled the path of war, Congress fought over whether or not they should replace Philip Schuyler as commander of the Northern Department. While Schuyler had his supporters, he had many more enemies who were all too eager to blame him for the loss of Ticonderoga so they could replace the New Yorker, who they found too aristocratic and less than charismatic, with a New Englander who could rally the men of the army. John Adams especially disliked Schuyler. In a letter to his wife Abigail, he declared, I think we shall never defend a post until we shoot a general. Schuyler's constant retreat toward Saratoga and Stillwater, while laying the path for future victory, did nothing in the moment to help his cause in Congress or with his men in the field. Major Henry B. Livingston perfectly captured the atmosphere, as the army seemed to be in a perpetual retreat. We are busy packing to move off, and of course, in confusion, destruction, and havoc mark our steps. I feel more sensibly at leaving Saratoga than any place we have yet passed. I hope we shall be able to make a stand at Stillwater. God only knows where we shall stop retreating. Even though Schuyler was not personally to blame for the loss of Ticonderoga, too many people wanted to see him replaced. On Sunday, August 10th, news of his removal by the Continental Congress reached Schuyler. I am far from being insensible of the indignity of being relieved of the command of the army at a time when an engagement must soon take place. Some of Schuyler's Albany neighbors felt his pain and issued a statement of support on his behalf. Persevere then, worthy sir, in the grand conflict and a cause that will reflect honor on your memory. Schuyler stayed on the scene saving Fort Stanwix from being lost by sending troops to the rescue and moving supplies to Van Skyke Island, just north of Albany. It was also during this span of time, on August 16th, that the Americans won the Battle of Bennington, their first strike against Burgoyne. During the battle, about 1,000 British soldiers were killed or wounded. It also caused the Native Americans who were supporting the British to withdraw nearly all of their aid. Throughout all of this, Schuyler remained active until the newly chosen commander of the Northern Department, Horatio Gates, arrived on the scene. I offer my services as needed, good sir. Though the circumstances may normally be cause for estrangement between us, for the good of our beloved country I hope we may work together. I possess a familiarity of the terrain and will be pleased to inform you of the plans I had drawn up for the continuation of the campaign. Gates replied that he would consult the Council of War. If Schuyler's services were needed, he would summon him from Albany, but Gates did not foresee such an incident. Schuyler retired to his home at Albany, where he remained until mid-October. Meanwhile, the Albany County Militia, which had been dispersed so the men could harvest their crops, was called back into action by Gates. By September 13th, 
Burgoyne and his army had set up camp in the fields of Saratoga. Their headquarters was set up at Schuyler's Saratoga home. On September 15th, Burgoyne called for an advance in his general orders. The tents to be struck at 12 o'clock and baggage loaded immediately. The army to march in three columns after having passed Schuyler's house. The right column consisting of the British on the right of the road. The left column consisting of the left wing along the meadows on the left of the road. The artillery forming the center column followed by the baggage. Thursday, September 18th, did not start out well for General Burgoyne. Early that morning, a foraging party of men and women set out to collect potatoes, despite orders to wait for clearance first. Second Lieutenant James Haddon recorded the incident in his journal. About 10 o'clock this morning, some soldiers and women, having strolled in front of the encampment, about four or five hundred yards to gather potatoes, were fired upon by a party of the enemy. Several were killed or wounded, and about 20 prisoners were made. Burgoyne issued yet another set of general orders after the incident. To the great reproach of discipline and of the common sense of the soldiers who have been made prisoners, this service has sustained a loss within ten days that might have cost the lives of some hundred of the enemy to have brought upon it action. The general will no longer bear to lose men for the pitiful consideration of potatoes or forage. The life of the soldier is the property of the king, and since neither the friendly admonition, repeated injunctions, nor corporal punishment have effect, after what has happened, ye army is now to be informed that the first soldier caught beyond the advanced sentries of the army will be instantly hanged. The following day, Burgoyne saw much more than a few men getting killed and taken prisoner over potatoes. For that day, September 19, 1777, was the Battle of Freeman's Farm. The British advanced in three columns. Among the leaders were General Burgoyne, Baron von Rietzel, and General Fraser. Haddon recalled the day in his journal. Around nine or ten, the army advanced in three columns. Around noon, we halted, and a few shots were exchanged by our advanced sentries. We resumed our march, but not long after, Rebel Colonel Morgan's riflemen began to attack. Earlier that morning, on the American side, General Gates had been hesitant to engage the enemy in battle, despite encouragement by General Benedict Arnold and intelligence that Burgoyne was advancing. Gates's aide-de-camp, James Wilkinson, informed him of Burgoyne's advance. Sir, the enemy is advancing. Colonel Colburn has just informed me. Let gentleman Johnny Burgoyne come to us. We are in no hurry to meet him. We have the high ground. We can see the enemy advancing below on the road to Albany while being protected by the forest. General, I beg you to take Captain Wilkinson and Colonel Coburn's intelligence to heart. We have a chance to strike and weaken the enemy before he is upon us. Is this not an ideal opportunity? General Arnold... We have nearly 9,000 men here. We have the geographical advantage. I see no need to advance at this time. General, I implore you to reconsider. The enemy is near enough to hear their drum tattoos. They are closing in on us. We have yet little time left before we need to act offensively. Need I remind you that Albany and our entire effort for liberty depends on our stand here? 
Fine. You have convinced me, General Arnold. Wilkinson, summon Colonel Morgan to me at once. Right away, sir. Good day, General Gates. Is it true we're to get a shot at those bloody lobster backs today? Good day, Colonel Morgan. Yes, we've news of the enemy. They currently advance in our direction toward our left. Rouse your riflemen, Colonel. You're to seek out the enemy and destroy as much of their front and flanks as possible. Major Dearborn and his light infantry troops will aid you. Aye, General. We'll advance at once. They'll be deathly weakened by the time we're through with them. Morgan and his men reached the woods and cabin in the clearing of what was known as Freeman's Farm before Burgoyne's men had arrived. They hid in the woods and cabin and awaited the British and Germans. They easily targeted and shot British men and officers from their vantage point, but then made the mistake of rushing out to attack, inadvertently attacking Burgoyne's main army. They did considerable damage to the British troops, but the British, who'd begun to retreat, were strengthened by Fraser and his men coming to their aid. The refreshed attack by the British scattered the Americans. James Wilkinson met Daniel Morgan in the woods during a moment of panic. What is happening, Colonel? My men, they're scattered. I must call them. A turkey call, eh? Your signal? Aye. Oh, Wilkinson, I'm ruined. Major Morris ran out so rapidly that he and his men were beaten before I could get up with the rear. And my men are scattered who knows where. I fear the worst. The day is yet young, Colonel. Rally yourself, and I'm certain your men will do the same. I saw some of your field officers on my trip about the field. I am certain they'll be to you shortly. Ah, that there's some good news. All is not yet lost, is it, Wilkinson? Far from it, Colonel. For two hours, the fighting ceased. Only the groans of the dying sounded from the field between the American and British forces. Gates sent reinforcements to aid Morgan, and, late that afternoon, the fighting resumed with an endless firing of weapons. Morgan and his men continued targeting officers and artillerymen. American Captain Benjamin Warren recalled the day in his memoir. We beat them back three times, and they reinforced and recovered their ground again till after sunset, without any intermission, when both parties retired and left the field. The British had the field by the end of the day, technically giving them the victory. But their casualty rates were high. 160 men were dead, 364 were wounded, and 42 were missing. Behind British lines, General Reitzel's wife, Baroness von Reitzel, was relieved her husband lived to be reunited with her and their three young daughters. Oh, Friedrich, I was so full of anguish all day. The children and I could hear everything from here. I was more dead than alive, fearing the worst had become you. I'm here, Federica. I'm exhausted, but alive, which is more than so many of our good men after today. They have brought a young man by the name of Young to the house, and, and Friedrich, he is in poor health. His leg is it's useless and shot through and has to gain green, yet, yet he refuses to have it amputated. I brought him a mattress and blankets, but I fear those are of little comfort. He is fortunate to have you near. I must go to headquarters, but I will return if I can. Mm. And I hear the young man groaning. 
I must tend to him. <sighs> Officer Young, is there anything you desire? Oh, Baroness, you have shown me so much kindness. I... <sighs> my one wish is unattainable. I, I wish to spare my parents my death. I am resigned to my fate, but I am their only son. My heart aches for them. I have resolved to have the leg amputated, for their sakes. They are blessed to have so brave a son. I will pray for your recovery. Young's leg was amputated, but it was too late. The Baroness visited him every day until his death days later. She heard his groans from the room next door as he breathed his last. In the time between the first and second battles, both armies waited. Burgoyne waited for relief from the British forces in New York City, but he could not wait much longer as he was beginning to run low on provisions. On the American side, General Benedict Arnold's relationship with Horatio Gates rapidly deteriorated in the days following the Battle of Freedman's Farm. It started with Gates leaving out any mention of Arnold in his account of the battle to the Continental Congress and erupted after Gates' general orders on September 22nd. Colonel Morgan's corps not being attached to any brigade or division of the army, he is to make returns and reports to headquarters only, from whence alone he is to receive orders. After reading Gates' orders, Arnold stormed to headquarters. General Gates, why do you attack me day after day? First, you fail to include even a mention of my name in your account of Freeman's Farm to Congress, and now you remove Morgan's men from my command. You test me, General. I know not what you speak of, General Arnold. I was in command of Morgan's Corps, and now you mean to strip me of that command. You insult my honor as a you soldier You are out of and line, General, General Arnold. I recommend you calm yourself immediately. The only man who has stepped from his proper place is you, you sir. You believe a display of such temper will convince me to give you command of Morgan's Corps. They are our most elite fighters. We owe to them the success at Freeman's Farm. I will not jeopardize their well-being by placing them in the hands of a hot-headed man who fancies himself a major general. How dare you reference Congress's wrongly passing over me for promotion. I will not be treated with such indignity. You will regret your words and actions of today, sir. Good day! Arnold and Gates exchanged heated letters in which Arnold sought permission to join Washington under the main army. Gates granted him leave, but Arnold lingered at camp, knowing a battle was on the horizon. Even though he was stripped of command, that did not prevent him from finding a way into the action, as we'll soon see. British and American forces skirmished nearly every day, but it wasn't until October 7th that the Second Battle of Saratoga, or the Battle of Bemis Heights, began. General Gates, I have seen with my own eyes. Half a mile from our encampment, the enemy is in an unharvested wheat field foraging. They are searching for sight of our troops, but the woods conceal us. Sir, I believe they are looking for battle. Captain Wilkinson, it's time to confront them. Tell Morgan and his men to set out at once. Right away, sir. Colonel Morgan, General Gates desires you to lead your men into battle against the enemy. Aye, it's about time we face them again. 
I'll take my men through the woods, so we gain the ground above the enemy. Once Brigadier General Poor and his men opened fire, we'll charge forward. Best of luck, Colonel. Meanwhile, Benedict Arnold was hoping to get in on the action, but Gates dashed his hopes. I know not why you're here, General Arnold. I have nothing for you to do. You have no business in camp any longer. Arnold stalked off, cursing Gates and turning to drink as the men around him prepared for battle. Meanwhile, the British were in Barber's Wheat Field when, around 3 p.m., the Americans attacked. British General Fraser and his men drove the Americans back, despite being outnumbered. The British forces were altogether about 7,000 strong, compared to over 12,000 American men. Fraser had miscalculated, though. British Major Ackland ordered a bayonet charge. With that, more American forces ran from the woods, wounding and killing many. Major Ackland was among the wounded. Just as the Americans began to overpower the British, Wilkinson raced to the rear to tell Brigadier General Abraham Tenbrook of Albany and his men, many of whom were from Albany and the surrounding countryside, that it was time to join the battle. Men, it is time for us to defend our city, our home. If we lose this battle, Albany will fall to the British. So hasten your pace. We must arrive before it's too late. With the arrival of Tenbrook's men, the American forces more than doubled that of the British. Their entrance strengthened the Americans and helped to secure an American victory. Meanwhile, Benedict Arnold had snuck out of camp and taken charge of another officer's men on the battlefield. He led them forward toward the British, but found the redoubt he wanted to storm was too well fortified, so settled for attacking some Canadian forces. In the height of battle, he was shot in his bad leg. His horse was then shot, fell on him, and broke his leg in the process. Arnold fared the battle much better than British General Fraser, though. Fraser was mortally shot in the height of battle. He was rushed to the house where Baroness von Rietzel was hiding with their daughter. Make way, General Fraser is wounded. Oh, oh my! Girls, stay over here. General, I will order a bed to be set for you. Oh, thank you, Baroness. Doctor, doctor, must I die? Do not conceal the truth from me. The bullet has pierced your intestines, General. Mayhaps you had not such a large breakfast. Uh, The outcome could be different. I'm afraid there is nothing that can be done. Oh, fatal ambition, my poor wife. Poor General Burgoyne. Please, someone transcribe a letter to General Burgoyne for me. Ah, I... I request to be buried tomorrow evening on top of the hill, please. Oh, someone read me my prayers. Right away, General. Baroness, I do beg pardon for the trouble. I uh, did not expect to see you in such a manner. I apologize that I will not make our dinner tonight. (laughs) You are no trouble at all, General. I am only sorry nothing more can be done to ease your pain. I suppose the pain will be soon over. That night, at 6 p.m., Fraser was buried according to his wishes at the top of the hill, amongst cannon fire from the Americans. I am the resurrection and the life, saith the Lord. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. 
and whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. The Americans continued to advance on the British until the morning of the 13th when they had them surrounded. Burgoyne and his men would have to cross a marshy ravine and steep hill to escape the Americans, but their rear would be vulnerable to attack. In addition, they were low on provisions. Burgoyne decided to do two things. On October 10th, he ordered Schuyler's Saratoga House and Mills be burnt to the ground. Only one mill and the outhouse were left standing. He then began exchanging letters with General Gates, negotiating terms of surrender. They eventually reached their terms. The army under Lieutenant General Burgoyne to march to Massachusetts Bay by the easiest, most expeditious and convenient route, and to, and be, to be quartered in, in near, near or, or as convenient as, as possible, possible to Boston, Boston, that the march of the troops may not be delayed when transports arrive to receive them. Captain James Wilkinson went to the British camp to meet with Burgoyne. Good day, General Burgoyne. I am Captain James Wilkinson, aide-de-camp to General Gates. Good day, Captain. I am hoping to be introduced to your general at the earliest convenience. Let us set out for camp immediately. Wilkinson recalled the meeting between Gates and Burgoyne in his memoir years later. General Gates, advised of Burgoyne's approach, met him at the head of camp. Burgoyne in a rich royal uniform and Gates in a plain blue frock. When they had approached, nearly within a sword's length, they reined up and halted. I then named the gentleman. General Burgoyne, may I have the honor of introducing you to Major General Gates? And General Burgoyne, raising a hat more gracefully, said, The fortune of war, General Gates, has made me your prisoner. I shall always be ready to bear testimony that it has not been through any fault of your excellency. Burgoyne and General Gates saluted and shook hands with the familiarity of old acquaintances. On October 17, 1777, General Burgoyne officially surrendered to General Gates. There to witness the historic moment was Philip Schuyler and his lifelong friend, Abraham Tenbrook. The British noted how somber and respectful the American forces were as the British marched through camp to surrender. Among those surrendering was Baroness von Rietzel and her three daughters. Her husband had survived the battle, but now they were all prisoners. As her carriage made its way into camp, a man approached her. He took one of her daughters in his arms and extended a hand to help her down. You tremble, but there is nothing to fear, Baroness. You will be given nothing but the kindest treatment. You are so kind and tender toward my children that my fear has greatly subsided. Allow me to introduce myself, Baroness. I am Major General Philip Schuyler. Please, come to my tent and I will provide you and your daughters with a meal. You may dismiss all your apprehensions. Your sufferings are at their end. The Baroness, her daughters, and husband went to Albany to the Schuyler's mansion and were hosted by Catherine Schuyler. It is a pleasure to make your acquaintance, Baroness. Allow me to introduce my daughters, Eliza and Peggy. Thank you for your kind hospitality, Madame. My family is forever in debt to yours. Not long after, General Burgoyne and many other British officers followed the Baroness to the Schuyler's home, 
where they stayed as prisoner guests, shown the best treatment. With that, the battles of Saratoga were won. The Americans had also won their first major victory. But most importantly, Albany did not fall into British hands. Although the war raged on for six more years, the victory at Saratoga convinced the French to provide aid in the form of troops, officers, and weapons to the Americans. That would not have been possible without both the soldiers and officers from Albany who risked, and sometimes gave, their lives. Thanks to them, the next generation of Albanians were able to grow up free from British rule. In the next episode, we'll conclude this first series by looking at where some of the Tenbrook and Schuyler children we've met over the past three episodes have ended up. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Tales of Old Albany. And thank you to Eric Schnitzer of Saratoga National Historical Park for his guidance in researching this episode. Many of the sites mentioned in this episode are preserved as museums and historic sites. The Saratoga National Historical Park is open seven days a week to visitors. The Schuyler House in Schuylerville, rebuilt in just a month after the Battle of Bemis Heights, is also open to visitors. Van Skyke's Mansion on Van Skyke Island is open select Sundays for tours. And both the Schuyler Mansion and Tenbrook Mansion in Albany are historic sites open to the public as well. has been a production of the Creative License Theatre Collective in partnership with the Albany County Historical Association. This episode was written by Jesse Serfilippi and co-produced and co-narrated by me, Aaron Holder, and me, Casey Polomain. To find out more about the ACHA at Tenbrook Mansion, visit www.tenbrookmansion.org. For a complete list of technical credits and info on our amazing cast of actors, information on past and upcoming productions, and more, visit Creative License at www.creativelicenseonline.com.